And we're back on the Work For It podcast. This is an interview with the one and only Ed Soul from Ed Soulcrafts. But before we get into this interview, I've got to hit up Maritime Knife Supply, Baker Forge and Tool, and you lovely people over at Patreon. Let's start from the top. Maritime Knife Supply, if you are looking for handle materials, steel, just about anything you need for knife making, tools, come on, he's... Lawrence Lake has it all over at MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca. Go get it. There's a nice exchange rate there. You're going to win on that exchange rate. It also gets you super quick. I just ordered some, and it's here already. Like, it's it's a super quick, you know, it's not like it's you're going to order it. It's coming from Canada. It's going to take forever. No, that's not the case at all. Lawrence Lake is a magician on the shipping. If you want to upgrade to the best steel on the market, go check out Baker Forge and Tool at bakerforge.com. They have crazy Damascus. They've got really, really cool looking stuff coming out all the time. They've got this Firestorm stuff that they just dropped. Holy cow. Between the copper, the bronze, all of the different stuff that he weaves into the steel and makes at a high end. Oh, goodness. Go check them out. And when you decide to buy something, use WFI10 for 10% off. That's the little promo code. Go use it. Also, thank you guys who follow us on uh, patreon.com. That's where you're going to see the after show for the normal show, but this is the interview, so let's get into it. Ed Soul, how you doing, man? Thank you for sitting down with me. Hey, buddy. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, love the podcast, love listening, love the interviews, so when you hit me up, I was absolutely thrilled to be on oh yeah for sure and honestly you know we we met i believe for the first time at blade show so it really yes. felt like we had a chemistry i was like <laughs> oh man we've got to sit down to do an interview yeah well we've met twice we met well we met first last year and in passing where i that was the first time i met brian and everyone pitched him being excessively short i'm like he's not short he's like average <laughs> And he's and he was not amused by that like one bit. And I'm like, oops. And then oh. yeah, then last year I was like, don't be creepy. Just be yourself. You'll be all right. And we hit it off. So I've got to ask, what was your read on me? Was I taller or shorter than you expected? I, I don't know. Well, that's the thing is like all your pictures are out of perspective. So I'm like, he's either going to be really tall or really short in your average height i would say you're like well like 510 ish 510 on the money baby yeah yeah exactly <laughs> you're you're spot on in the middle like i was like yeah I, I was expecting you to be like six six i'm not gonna lie i was like you know all these people that do these you know extreme close-ups like uh dennis tyrell like before people were like oh yeah he's six four i was like he's got to be tall like just the way everything is set up and everything looks so small behind him He's got to be huge. You know, I've always had a theory about, you know, it really comes down to what angle you commonly record yourself at. So like me, a lot of people think I was shorter than, you know, I end up being taller than what they expect I am. I am because I like to record with the, the camera angle just a little bit above eye line. Yeah. So it kind you kind of have a downward perspective. And in real life, most of the people that you see, you know, you're, you're looking down. The absolute opposite is pickle cutters. Nick Tobin, <laughs> he always records from way down low, and then you know you look at you look up at him through the screen, and all of a sudden you know pickle cutters is a normal sized dude, and but you're used to looking up at him, so it, he feels. I mean, commonly, I hate to say it, pickle, but a lot of people said like, oh, pickle's a little bit shorter than I expected. <laughs> That's yeah. I really think that camera angle is a big thing. 
I know. I'm, I'm sorry. This is all about Ed. What are we talking about camera <laughs> angles for? Come on now. So, Ed, I want to talk about the knives that you've been putting out lately because it really seems like you're one of those guys that nails down a couple really nice designs and then you stick with it. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things where I get an idea in my head of what something that I would use and I see other people using. And then it's just a slow progression of refining that same model over and over and over again. I really think that's kind of how you get better because I can do one-offs all day, every day, but it's not the same as taking that, you know, it, it's like you have to make that 10,000 of the same thing to master a kind of perspective. So I, just, I like coming up with something new and then just keep tweaking it from the first one to the hundredth one. And like, usually like only I will see the differences, but I know that if I were to hold it, I would, it would feel that much better versus the first one. See, you and I have a very different path with that because I've done all of these one-offs. So I really appreciate your dedication to doing, you know, you've got your Pathfinder, you have your chef knife, which is like a straight back chef knife. Mm -hmm. You have your, now your Piranha, that's an even smaller EDC. And there's just, you know, you see so many of the same things, but then because your eye is tuned to seeing the, the same profiles when you make those little tweaks and you know you do different handles you do different things it those things shine even brighter because you're used to seeing the same thing so it feels like an even elevated feature yeah and that's really what i want like every i want my knives like when you go to a knife show everyone has their knives on the table and i want people to be able to say oh wow there's 10 of the exact same knife on their table I'm like oh is there, are these CNC or plasma cut? Or, and they're like, nope, they're all cut out by hand. But they're like, but they're identical. And you're like, that's the goal. <laughs> I, I want that consistency. And then, you know, then and that's a, of, that's a huge skill all in its own. Being able to reproduce over and over and over again is a hard thing to do. And it seems like you're on the money with it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a real journey and I've gotten a lot of help along the way, but yeah, it's, that's what I like. I like is that every, cause it, what I feel it's really, I'm, yeah, sorry, getting uh, caught on my tongue. You're but good, I good. like to specialize. Again, when you're, you focus on that one thing, you're the best at that one thing. And that's what I really feel like sets me apart from other makers is they're, the designs are different. The handles are cool. But if you were to buy one for yourself and then later, you know, two years down the line, you buy one for a friend as a gift they'll still be the same. Like it's not a, a huge departure from one or the other and they'll all feel great in your hand. Like I want them to be light. I like them to just, you know, feel like they just, they belong in your hand. And the only way I know how to do that is just making the same knife over and over and over again, and then just keep slowly tweaking it until it's absolutely perfect. Now, because you're making the same one over and over again, have you ever looked at doing water jet cutting? Um, I've thought about it, but I'd have to buy so many at a time to make it worth my, worth my while that yeah, I just haven't gotten to that point yet. Maybe down the line where I, you know, I'm big and famous like Brian Cohn. I can have like, <laughs> oh, I need, I need 20 cut out at a time. Oh, come on. Don't even say that. Get out of here. Come on now. Now, I guess what is the thing that there are always an infinite number of tips and tricks to doing something well. What if you had one or two to really be able to dial in 
doing the same design and getting a you know the same output like the same profile is there a few things that you can think of off the top of your head that really helps you reproduce the exact same thing over and over yeah so the number one is have a solid template like don't use paper i like using um plexiglass just because it's cheap and transparent and i can write on it with marker and i can see how things are going to line up on the steel and then the other big one is the steel cover it in like i use dicum but some sort of paint and then use a like a carbide scribe line so the line you're grinding to is very very small mm. that's what makes it look makes them identical like if you're off the thickness of the of the scribe line that's what like 164th like you nobody's going to see that now i i'm really interested in that because i'm a bastard i use paper templates and a sharpie so <laughs> the thickness of that sh first of all the paper templates squirming all over the place and you're mm -hmm. taking forever trying to get the thing perfectly straight and yuck and then here I am also going around that thing with a Sharpie, which, I mean, there's a solid, there's got to be an eighth of an inch of a, of a line. And yeah. that's a solid amount when you're trying to do, like, if I was to do a bunch all this all over, over and over again, eighth mm -hmm. of an inch in different places can be very noticeable. Oh, yeah. Um, for me, uh, one of the reasons I went to the carbide scribe line is I, I was do I would basically do the same thing. I would just trace it with a marker. I still using my plexiglass, but I trace it with a marker and instinctively I would stop at where the marker started instead of removing all of the marker. Oh, and yeah. then when it came time to put the knives in sheaths, I'm like, what the, the, you know, the, these five knives don't fit in sheaths. And I had to retrace my steps. And then that's when I realized, Oh, I traced it to the outside of the marker instead of the inside of the marker. And that's why I got to get rid of the marker. So then you just paint the steel with dicum and then, like I said, a carbide trace. And that way, I, I the line I'm grinding to is very, very small. So there's no, there's no give. Like, it's either I'm there or I'm not. Well, even with archery or, you know, other things like that, the whole adage is aim small, miss small. So, you know, that makes sense. The, the idea of use a very small fine line that you know if you get right up to that fine line i mean if instead of having a quarter inch or a, a, an eighth inch wide target you have a tiny tiny target you're going to get a lot closer it's it's highly <coughs> intelligent that's smart that's super smart oh it sounds like Sorry you had a cough yeah. there for it's a second like, that's, and that's totally one of those fine. things is so the next is... thing ed i'm really interested in some of the the designs that you've been doing over and over again i said before the pathfinder the piranha there's a couple other knives that you do i want to hone in on your chef knives you have a really unique design on your chef knives it's a completely straight back design and it's yeah. you know a lot of people do straight back you know bushcrafter knives or you know, like old hunting knife styles. I love that you are taking that to the chef knife. What really, like, what made you want to go towards the straight back design? I took a cooking class and I had a knife that was similar to that. And it was completely straight. And like I said, it was just basically a glorified kind of like a triangle. Okay. And I just remember that was the best knife I'd ever used. And I mean, that was, shoot, that was like over 20 years ago. I was taking a cooking class with my grandma. 
And like I said, it just stood out as just being super comfortable, super light, just a great slicer. And, and I, we, were, we were chopping vegetables for like two plus hours. And I just remember my hands and my wrists didn't hurt. And it yeah. just sat in the back of my mind, like someday I'm going to buy one and I could never find it. And I started making knives. I'm like, hey, you know that one knife I really liked? I could probably make that now. <laughs> So, I mean, it's it's not that you ripped it completely because it's totally, you can see your own design added into it. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm going off of memories from 20 plus years ago. Like, I remember the highlights and then, you know, I just kind of sprinkled some Ed flavoring on it. And that, that became the quote unquote, the six inch non-traditional chef. Is that what you call it? The non-traditional chef? Yes. I love I, that. Because I don't know, I've never, like I said, I've never seen another one. I don't know what they're called. So instead of like lying to people saying, oh, it's based on this or blat and the other, I'm saying it's a non-traditional chef knife. It is what it is. And sometimes like saying it's non-traditional, that is in itself enough of a pull to some people. Like, oh, well, I'm a non-traditional chef myself. I want to stand out different. So I need a <laughs> chef knife. And holy cow, it's called the non-traditional chef. There you go. <laughs> The, the naming aspect alone, that's really smart. Well, I, I stumbled into smart. It's more about just being honest and transparent. I didn't know what to call it, and I didn't want to like come up with something weird or hokey. So I'm like, it's non-traditional. This is what I got. Let's go with it. And people, and people have responded to it, like you said, so it stuck. There it is. There it is. So do you think there is an aspect to it that makes – because like you said – you know, you can chop with it and your wrist doesn't hurt after eight hours or however long you're you're using it. Do you think there is a specific aspect to that knife that really lends to that? Um, I, I just kind of think it's the overall blade shape and how the handles and basically it all pivots on your pinch grip. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you're what you're using it for, you can just tilt it in your hand just by using your, your pointer finger. And that's enough to control the knife perfectly. So I can just keep, you know, depending on if I'm going from onions to tomatoes to celery, just the most minute motions in your hands change the entire geometry of how you're holding it and how you're cutting. And like I said, it's just, it's just a delightful, like once you use it, you never go back to everything else. You're like, because again, the French, you know, French curve chefs, the German chefs, they have a very specific way how they want you to use them. And me being just, you know, podunk Mexican chef who learned with his grandma how to cook, I don't know the right way to use any of those. <laughs> so I just hold it how I feel is comfortable in my hand. And at, depending on how I'm using it, I'll put my finger out a little bit for onions for, like, really fine control. Or if I'm just digging in and chopping through, like, carrots and potatoes, I pull my that, that pointer finger back. And I use the, the palm of my hand. But it's just, like I said, it just lends itself to be used however you want to use it. I could tell just looking at it that it was going to be a very comfortable chef knife to use for a long time. And I think the biggest thing is with that straight back, it allows the geometry of the blade between the tip of the blade down to the heel. With that being such a such a change, um, it basically forces the the handle itself when the when the cutting edge is flat down on your cutting board the handle of the blade is is pointing up and away at an angle away from the cutting board. Yep. And as you're using it, you want that because if you're chopping and let's say the angle of that handle is level with the cutting board or even with some people, they, they curve them down towards the cutting board. 
as you're chopping, your your wrist is bending and it's overextending back towards, you know, if if you just stand there and you're you're doing that chopping motion, you don't want your wrist to go past flat. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And that, so, that's the thing is, like you said, it it gives you that extra leverage. Like I said, so when you're bearing down on it, you have that whole handle up against your palm, keeping your hands raised. So it's a better chopping knife. And at the same time, if you were to decide to like, you know, death grip it and you put your fingers underneath it to bear down, you won't hit your fingers on the cutting board either. Like I said, it's no matter what you do, it's like I said, it's going to perform. And like I said, I've, 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 I think I've thought of everything. Cause like I said, depending on how you hold it, but even if you hold it like the, basically, like I said, like with the death grip, and you're chopping down your feet, your fingers and your knuckles won't hit the cutting board. Right. Right. And that's, that's huge. That's, that's why it's such a really nice design. Now, not only do you have that one, the unconventional chef, but even more unconventional, you have a version of it that doesn't have handles and it's all like this rock texture. <laughs> what, what, what was the genesis of that? Because I know a lot of chefs, I mean, they want to have the big ergonomic handles. So what is, what is the idea be behind doing one without handles at all? So I make a small rock textured knife called the ES-22. And it's just basically, it's an integral knife. There's no handles, rock textured. And it's just meant to take it out of the woods and beat it like it owes you money because it's basically indestructible. It's a quarter inch thick to when you start. And people love it. Like for going camping and just whatever, you know, uh, batoning through wood, it's a great knife. But the big complaint I got was like, this is great for everything but cooking. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, it's not meant to cook. And he's like, well, can you make me one? That ha that has the same look and feel, but I can actually use for cooking while I'm out camping. Call it a set, and I'm like, sure. And that, that's where it came from. But yeah, the amount of videos I get, uh, people throwing beer cans up, up and then chopping through it at 2 a.m. in the morning is kind of <laughs> ridiculous. I love that. That's, I mean, I I kind of assumed that it was supposed to be like a light backpacker chef knife, but holy cow, is that a really cool story for the genesis behind it? Now, how many people, like how, like you said, there's there's people that are throwing up beer cans and throwing and you know doing crazy things. But how much feedback have you gotten from people who have actually used it? How much do they love it? Oh, um, I'm very blessed that I, I, my customers are very communicative, so they're nice. always updating me on how things are going. And I always offer like if you if they, especially like if they, if I know they're hunters or campers, I'm like, dude. If you go out in the woods and just beat it to hell, like bring it back, let me know. I, I'm happy to resharpen whatever you need. And the feedback's always like, no, man, it did great. Like, I'm, you know, I shot all these animals. I skinned them all. It was great. You know, I was using the chef knife and they'll literally, because it's so robust, they'll just find a piece of wood and they'll just process part of the animal right there in the, in the middle of the woods. And it'll go through bone, skin, everything and zero issues. Like I said, at most, I've had to shark, give it a touch up because they hit, you know, they hit a rock with it. But <laughs> like it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's been crazy. Like, oh, like it's, Ed, I think I bent the tip. And I'm like, what happened? Well, somebody scared me and I threw the knife at him and it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and I and I hit his canteen. I'm like, well, is he okay? And I was like, yeah, but my the tip's a little mischief. I'm like, it's fine. Bring it back. Like we can fix it. Right. Right. That. What type of steel are you using? Because obviously you're using something that is working incredibly well. 
Uh, for those, so for the outdoor ones, it's ten ninety five. Okay. It's just a. Uh, I've just uh, kind of tightened up. I started off using Laren Thomas's heat treat recipe, and then I've just kind of adjusted it to get a little bit more toughness out of it, but still have that really good sharp edge, and it's been doing great. Do you? Can you kind of divulge? Like, what are you doing different? I would have to go to my workshop to tell you, but it's basically. I'm tempering it to 61 Rockwell hardness. So um, I know that it, I heat it like, because again, the glory of having an even heat is I can mess with the settings. And I found that when I'm trying to manipulate the temperatures by adding increments of 15 degrees, I can sneak up on what I want to get to. So I want to say I, off the top of my head, it's, uh, silk at like 14.95 for 15 minutes quench and parks 50 mm -hmm. and then i do um i don't know if you know this but uh laren thomas and other people that are, i can't remember the guy that makes apex ultra say that after immediately after temp after quenching you have you any form of cold treatment has uh uh improve has shown improvements in the the steel so uh, through, I have a, I have a freezer in my workshop. I have a crank to max. So, as soon as the knife comes out of the oil, I throw it in the freezer for an hour or two, and then from there, I want to say um, I temper it for at three seventy five for two hours twice. Well, obviously, what if that is exactly what it is, or it's slightly skewed off of that? Whatever it is, it's working incredibly well. Yeah. So, I mean. Don't mess with perfection. <laughs> Again, going yeah, and that's the beauty. Is like I said, it's it's stored in the even heat, so I don't have to remember it. <laughs> so, yeah, and, it's kind of like the same thing where it's like, can you even remember half the people's phone numbers that you communicate with anymore? Because it's all just programmed in your phone. <laughs> so same thing. I can remember everyone's phone number that I needed to know before I had a cell phone that would store phone numbers. Like I remember my dad's old work phone number. I remember my best friend's phone, his home number from 1992 and my, and my old house phone number. My wife's phone number that I call every day, I need to look up. Exactly. Isn't that kind of funny? So kind of speaking, you, you brought up your youth a little bit. Let's go ahead and talk about your maker past. So you, you grew up in Mexico. and Was it right there in Mexico City? No, I grew up in Guadalajara. Um, oh, okay. It was an eight-hour bus drive to Mexico City. All right, all right. I don't know why I had it in my mind that you're from, you know, right in the heart of Mexico City. I think I mean, Brian said that, but... Oh, Brian, it's your fault. Come on, man. <laughs> it's fine. It's Mexico. It's it's all basically the same. same. Same type of city, just closer to the beach. So was it cityscape? Like, you know, yes. like... So, so you are, it's, I imagine growing up in a city, it's kind of hard to do projects, right? Well, it's not just that. It's a completely cultural change. Like it, everyone is raised that you need to be a white collar worker. You need to be some sort of executive. You don't want to work, you know, only poor people work with their hands. Like mm. if it's only if you failed and you're an alcoholic that you go into the trades. So it's very looked down upon. Like I always felt like I wanted to like, like, especially, you know, coming to the U S and going camping with my grandfather, I was very handy and we would go fishing and we would whittle and we'd make, you know, you know, our own little wooden forks and stuff to cook. But then I'd go home 
And like, oh my gosh, Ed, why do you have calluses on your hands? Like, that looks terrible. What are we going to say? And I'm like, I was outside. I'm like, no, 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 just, just, say, just say that you like to work out and that's from, and you couldn't find your like weightlifting gloves. I'm like, look at me, mom. Like, I haven't seen the inside of a gym since like forever. Like, <laughs> no one's going to believe that. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where if I had known about the trades here in the U.S., I would have gone into the trades here because back at home, like I said, I would see, you see these beautiful art pieces made by people, but they'd literally be selling them for, you know, ten fifteen dollars on the side of the road. So yeah, it's it's like I always had the desire to do it, but like growing up, like the the closest I got was my parents let me take um, some basic art and drawing classes. I was never allowed to do anything, you know, with my hands. So your parents were very much against, you know, you trying to make anything or do anything mechanical. Yes, and that's that's kind of an outlier with the maker community. You know, that's that's. It seems like a lot of people, when they, you know, if they are makers now, it's because way back when their parents were really into this or allowed them to do that. So what was what was your time when you were like, you know what, screw it, I'm going to do it anyways? It wasn't until my mid-30s. Um, wow. Yeah. It was, I, like I said, I'd always been kind of handy. And once, you know, I'd moved up here to the U.S. and I was living with my wife, well, me being the cheapo I am, I refuse to pay people to fix things. You know, I'd go to YouTube University, figure it out, and I would do it. And I started going down the rabbit hole of uh, wood carving. And specifically, I loved watch people that were, you know, carving spoons and spatulas. And one day my wife's like, hey, you know, in Franklin, there's like a whittling show. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, if you want to go, we'll go. And I was like a deer in the headlights. Like I walked in and you see all these amazing things of people making stuff with their hands. It just blew my mind. And um, and as I was walking around, this guy, uh, just one of the vendors, he saw you know he basically saw the money money in my eyes. And he's like, "Hey, you're new here. Have you ever done any whittling?" And I'm like, "No." He's like, "You want to try it?" And I'm like, "Yeah." I was like, "What do you want to make?" I'm like, "I'd love to make some wooden spoons." He's like, "Here you go. You need this book, and these and these two wood carving tools, and this will." basically make 90% of a any spoon you want to make and it's like oh my gosh it's like yeah 100 bucks and just so you know I made these two knives so you're you're good to go and I was like that's awesome and <laughs> I loved it and then um, fast forward a, a couple of months I was like you know I'm really getting into it you know I want to expand my tool collection so I went to Home Depot and I bought some chisels thinking a chisel's a chisel right right <laughs> and they were hot garbage like they were yeah. so bad and I'm like well, clearly, uh, the guy said that he made these knives, so handmade knives have to be better, or handmade chisels have to be better than store-bought chisels. So I'm like, go online, and I'm like, what are the best chisels in the world? And they're like, <laughs> these, like the Lee Valley Sweethearts or something, and they're like $350 a chisel, and you needed to set a five. Right. And I'm like, oh, oh, that ain't me, buddy. I'm like, for the cost of two chisels, I can buy an anvil and make a forge, and I can make my own chisels. And I'll save myself all this money. <laughs> <laughs> so you got into knife making through chisel making, which came from, you know, chis yeah. like trying to winding to whittle. Yes. I love that. And yeah, and you know, and needless to say, it was a horrible financial mistake because I spent way more <laughs> on tools for making knives than I had on a set of chisels. Now, here's my question. Do you actually ever get back to making spoons and spatulas? I do. 
I I travel, especially like when we're on the road here in the U.S. I will uh, I'll take a couple of uh, my two little wood carving things and a piece of wood, and I'll just whittle while we're at like my grandparents' house when nobody's looking. Now I've got to ask: on a scale from zero to Carol and Jeanette, how good are the spoons that you make now? Oh no, nowhere near Cow and Jeanette. First <laughs> off, is like I look at her and I just get upset. I'm like, how is she so good? <laughs> Oh, so like, tell me like, so there are some like your chef knife without the handles and it's rock texture and it's all rustic. Do you take the same, you know, do you try to put that rustic feel into your spoons and spatulas? Uh, ironically, no. And I probably should, cause that'd be super easy to do. I, I just like simple, I like wood that feels really smooth and just kind of disappears in your hand and are very light. So they're very they're, they're very slender to the point that I accidentally snap them every once in a while when I'm trying sure. to cook for the family. I'm like, I'm gonna stir this, you know, this chili. Like it's a little thick, but it'll be fine. It'll be stir, stir, snap. Ah. Like, what was that, Daddy? <laughs> nothing, just nothing. Let me pull this out. It's fine. Oh, jeez. So let's get back to you know your first set of chisels, or maybe your either. Let's talk about your first chisel that you made, or your first knife that you made tell me about the the how it went and maybe some of the mistakes that you're looking back now is comical mm -hmm. oh my gosh uh everything was terrible um like so again i knew self-taught didn't know anything the first forge i made was a little coffee can forge nice and again me being the city slicker i am i had no idea how to use any sort of tool so i bought uh, so basically the, the coffee can forge is basically you drill a hole in the side and you put in a map gas torch and that's your flame source. Well, I had never used a map. I didn't even know what a map gas torch was. Wait a second. Were you just using a bare coffee can? You didn't put any refractory in it? I learned really quickly that I actually needed to put refractory in it. But I <laughs> So, but even before I melted that first coffee can, I didn't know how to turn on a map gas torch. So I... So I stepped outside of the garage and I'm fiddling with it and I'm trying to put the nozzle onto the tank and like it's just not going and it's hot and I'm sweaty. Finally, I just jam it on and I was trying to, and it's got the lighter button and I'm not, I'm, it's just not working. Sure. And so come to realize something was jammed wrong way. I, so I undo it, I redo it and I'm kind of holding it with my pinky upside down to figure out how I'm supposed to light it because I thought there was like a battery at the bottom. Anyways, I somehow I light it and the map gas torch just literally just does a couple 360s around my finger and I panic and I threw it into the street as it was still <laughs> lit. But yeah, so there was this black line from right next to my wife's car through the side yard into the, into the, you know, into the sidewalk and I just ended up running over there and like just stomping on it with my foot and turning it off. And <laughs> I just go in, I just close the garage door and I go inside. My wife's like, what happened? I thought you were going to be working in the, in, in the garage. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Next morning she comes downstairs to go to work. She's like, what the happened? I'm like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> At least it didn't hit the car. Yeah. You no, know? I, she would have divorced me right then and there. Oh, geez. <laughs> but yeah. And then, so anyway, so the next night, I put it into the coffee can thinking, oh, because I, I put like a little bit of like cement in it, but like it was super thin, not the right refractory. And I'm like just ba basically heating up this 
you know, piece of mild steel. And I'm, you know, going from the can that's on my, on my work desk to my little railroad spike gamble. And then I smell fire and I literally burned through the coffee can and it burnt the table. Yeah. <laughs> I had to rip off the top and put a new one on it. We had some technical difficulties. That stuff happens with podcasts, but we're going to jump right back into it. Ed, you were just talking about destroying that first countertop. What the heck do you do from there? Um, like, uh, So thankfully, uh, Home Depot is still open. So I went, bought a new one, destroyed the evidence, and then just reinstalled it and pretend nothing happened. And then when the wife was complaining about the smell of smoke, I told her it was a, she was imagining things. <laughs> I imagine you can only get away with that once. Uh, my wife's a saint, so I think there's some of, uh, would be like, uh, she's just in a state of denial. Like, he's going to fix, if he broke something, he'll he's good enough that he'll fix it and I don't have to worry about it. So there's a level of trust there where if you were to actually mess something up, she knows that you're you're the man, you can make it happen. Oh, yeah. So perfect example of that was this last weekend. Um my mother-in-law asked me to come down to visit and fix this hole in her attic where birds and wildlife uh, were getting into, into her attic. So I'm up there and I'm stapling this, you know, fine mesh down and all of a sudden my foot slips and I find, and I literally go through the, at, the seal, the, the roof and land in my, my mother-in-law's kitchen. Oh my God. Are you dude, okay? I, dude, I'm, I'm sore, but I'm fine. Nothing a little couple beers couldn't self. I couldn't self medicate with. But all I hear is this: I'm laying on the ground. All I hear is, "Oh no! Oh no! No! No!" And I'm just looking up at this hole in the hole in the in, her, in the ceiling, and I'm like, "There goes this weekend." So yeah. So long as my wife, bless her heart, she like I said, she is the best. She just looked at me and goes, "Um, so I guess we're going to Home Depot." And I'm like, "Yep." <laughs> Took oh her to Home goodness. Depot, uh, bought, a, bought a new sheet of drywall, all the tools to, to patch it in, and then I just spent the rest of the weekend just fixing the hole, taking out all the insulation that had fallen through with me. And yeah, that was that, that was this weekend. <laughs> Good news is none's the wiser. Everything is fixed and patched. I just need to let it finish drying, and I will go down in a week or two to paint it. But yeah. Man. That sucks, and you know I'm I'm fresh off of doing drywall, redoing the uh, sunroom. So, doing that drywall is not a fun task. No. Do you do you find yourself doing that type of stuff on the regular? There's always something that needs to be fixed. I mean, yeah. thankfully it's not always drywall, but I'm always fixing something or bringing some some ancient piece of equipment that was given to us back to life. But yeah, there's always something. So you were talking about doing your first knife and doing the coffee can forge, and it was all inside of your garage at the time. Tell me you're not still working out of a garage. No, thankfully not. Um, we have since moved uh, houses, and now I have a little barn uh, a couple hundred feet from the house, and I have completely taken it over. Nice. So first off, how big is the barn? And then tell me about, like, you know, how you were able to maximize with a larger space, maximize your ability to make these beautiful knives. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's about 24 feet by 30, 34 feet or 25 by 35. And the beauty of it is when I started making knives, Ed, you know, Ed's soul 
was paying for all of the materials and the consumables, but then when I sold the knives, Edsel Crash Edsel Crafts was cashing in on all the profits, and I knew I didn't have space for anything else, so I just kept squirreling the money away, thinking one day we're going to move and I'm going to have this beautiful house with a beautiful shop, and when that day comes, I'll have all the money to um, to buy all the tools I wanted. And lo and behold, we found this house. And ironically enough, right after we bought the house, I ended up horribly dislocating my shoulder. Ooh! Yeah, it, it took. I was. Uh, I had to have major. I have four anchors in my in my dominant shoulder now, and it took me out of work for over four months. So that whole time, I'm like, "Hey, honey, you know, I love doing this. I'm going to keep doing this for the long haul." I'm going to go ahead and take all the money I've saved selling knives to buy all the tools that I can do this for the rest of my life. And she's like, okay, well, how much money is it? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't look in the account because I, the five-year-old in me would spend it on ice cream. <laughs> so, uh, so we look in, so we, we open up the account. She's like, you have that much money. And I'm like, and it's mine. <laughs> right. So, right. uh, with that, I was able to basically, uh, I, I, I bought an even heat oven. I bought my 1210 uh, press from Coal Ironworks. I got a tire hammer, and then I just built all of the shelving. And, the, and, and I did it with one arm, too, which was the fun part, was I built all of the tables and the shelves so I could put all the, store everything I needed to. So it's basically the perfect little workshop for me. Now, was that your, your dominant arm or your, your other no, it was my dominant arm. I'm left-handed, oh. and it was my left shoulder. Like I couldn't do anything. But let's look at it. Let's look at the positive. So you went from hammering with your dominant hand, which is your left hand, to building your entire shop hammering with your right hand. Yes. Right? So yeah, are you ambidextrous now at the forge or what? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. If there I get tired of my left arm, I switch to the right. There it is. That's that's like the dream, though, because you can forge forever that way. Yeah, pre yeah, pretty much. Like I'll be sweating Chris going out of breath, but my arms aren't worn out. <laughs> well, at least you have that going for you. So, how long ago was this was this uh, whole debacle? The that was shoot. I want to say about two years ago. All right. So relatively yeah. recently. Yeah, it was right at the end of COVID, because I remember the because this had I, I blew out my shoulder in Mexico. And it was a whole thing where I, they, they, the hospital I went to would not let me register into through the emergency room because if I did that, they'd have to keep me for 45 days. And I, one, I wouldn't be able to go, to go home to Mexico, but two, the hospital didn't have enough space for me. Mm, yeah. That, I mean, that, that's a pretty common story, you know? Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy for sure. So you were able to, I mean, it sounds like you pretty much patched yourself up and you made it happen though. Yeah. There you go. So you said that, I mean, you, you had the even heat, you have the press, you have the, the tire, did you say a tire hammer? Yes. I mean, come on, you've got just about everything a knife maker dreams of. Yes, I, I do. I went from absolutely nothing to literally having all the toys and i just paid for it in chef knives and railroad spike knives there it is i mean come on is that not the american dream right there it is and that's and that's one of the things that kills me is people like oh well i could do everything that you do if i had all those tools and i'm like well guess what like my tire hammer i i literally did the math i had to make 87 railroad spike knives to pay for that tire hammer 
and then I did not account for shipping. <laughs> so then I had to make another 30 railroad spike knives and sell them real quick. Yep, yep. But yeah, but that's that's the thing is like you said, you just you just got to work for it, man. There it is. Ding ding ding. Roll credits, <laughs> work for it. <laughs> so, switching, I mean, you grew up in Mexico and you're now in the US. What do you find is the main difference? Like, obviously, there's cultural differences. There's going to be stuff like that. But um, is there any other hindrances or something that are positives or negatives? Oh, did I lose you again? No, no it, it, you, cho you went chopping. Could you repeat the question? Absolutely. So sorry about that. So, you know, you moved from Mexico to the U.S. and you, you started your own business and you, you're making things happen. Now... Can you talk on some of the differences? If I know there's obviously cultural differences and stuff like that, but I mean, what is it like, you know, from what you saw in Mexico to actually, you know, starting a business here in the U.S.? Um, shoot, there's a lot. So the big thing in Mexico is the materials are expensive. Oh, okay. But the labor is cheap. So anything that's like handmade is very devalued because, like I said, there's just people don't appreciate laborers or anything that's made by hand. So like I have one of my most precious possessions is this gentleman who made this beautiful painting of a, of a landscape on the inside of a spoon that I bought for 50 cents and it took him three hours. Like I wow. sat there and watched him make it. Whereas here in the U S you know, it's the exact opposite. Materials are cheap, but the labor is expensive, especially like making knives, you know, the steel is a couple bucks. But, you know, it's all the abrasives and the hours you're spending at the grinder. That's the expensive part. And um, I would say that's one of the big differences. The second one is people in the U.S. are a lot more supportive mm. versus Mexico. Whereas, in, oh, I know, like, if if you needed something, they're like, oh, I know a guy. And then I would go, go to that guy and say, instead of saying, hey, I appreciate your handmade goods, I would badger you for a discount versus paying full price. Whereas here in the US, I feel it's like a lot more of, hey, I have this great friend. If you guys ever need like a chef knife or whatever, talk to me, I'll put you in touch with Ed. He's a great guy, he'll take care of you. You know, it, you know he makes products for, for life where in Mexico, that doesn't happen. Like it's the only reason they would bring me, bring me up is I know a guy and he'll hook us up. Oh, wow, okay, all right. I mean, that is a pretty huge, I mean, especially, you know, making that switch, that is a huge, huge difference. Do you feel like it helped you or hindered you, you know? Because obviously, you know, you make, and a lot of the listeners and myself make these high-end knives, and we sell them for the price that we can fetch, and that, that yeah. tends to be higher than some people expect. Now, do you feel like the move helped you, you know, be able to do this full-time earlier? Yes. So one being in the U.S., I it was huge i could not do this in mexico but just having but yeah just going full time and i want to say yes so the short answer is seeing how bad it was in mexico and what i would be have to do in mexico to have the level of success i have here has really fueled my fire like no matter how bad of a day i have here in my workshop i'll have to think about i was like I could be back in Mexico. <laughs> it could and be like, a lot worse. I'm not bringing this up as like, oh, American superiority, yada, yada, yada. I, I genuinely like, you know, there has to be positives about 
you know, living in Mexico. Do you, is there a couple of those that you can kind of talk about? Oh, no. Yes. So I'm talking about work, but yes. So the people are amazing. The food's amazing. And anything you could ever want to do, you can find somebody to do it with in Guadalajara. Like it's just such a big city, any niche hobby, you can find a group of people to do it with. And like I said, it's just, it's the, the people are great. But like I said, going back, but the work part of it is where it suffers. Like I have a friend who has a furniture business down there and he has a giant CSNC to cut out the tables out of these slabs of wood. He literally has to have two addresses with two independent electrical supply, electrical supplies into those quote unquote homes in order to run his tooling because just having one line of electricity into the workshop does not give the CNC enough power to run it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's complained to everybody and every and everything. It's like, hey, what do I need to do? I'm willing to pay more. I, you know, I just need a consistent amount of voltage to run this piece of equipment, and they won't give it to him. So Mexico being Mexico, he's like, hey, if we say ha the left half of the shop is you know one two three Baker Street, <laughs> and the other half of the shop is one two you know one two five Baker Street, can I get two lines of juice? And I'm like. Well, I mean, it's technically the same building. He's like, well, how much do I have to pay you to? Oh, well, you know, for you know, two hundred <laughs> bucks. Well, you know, we can make it three addresses. <laughs> so there is a level of corruption where, on one hand, that's bad, but on the other hand, you can get a lot of shit done. You know, on the low low. Oh yeah, everything gets done that way. Oh wow. Well, I mean, you know, there's there's positives and there's negatives, just like anything. Yep. So I want to talk, I'm changing a little bit. You know, we were we were talking a little bit ago about all of the different things that you have in your shop with all these all these big purchases you did one after the other after the other. Um, tell me about why you pulled the trigger on getting a laser etching machine because I am seeing some really cool things that you are putting on the side of knives between these these crazy looking fish a shark I mean come on that's the coolest <laughs> so first of all that's not me that's my buddy Joe who lives oh. he lives close by he is the laser he is the laser genius I come up with the stupid idea and he just looks at me he's like that's ridiculous let's do it Give him a shout out real quick. Yeah, Where can people um, find he him? He is j at Joe Name on Instagram, and that's and the funny part is that's his real name is Joe Name, but Facebook won't let him have an account with the last name name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Joe is my guy, and he is a godsend. He is he anytime I I come up with a crazy idea, you know, he'll always say, "Let me do some tests," and we've we've come up with a system that's really the trick like the secret behind it to, to our success with lasering is i will give him test steel of the night that's exactly like the knives i make so i will take a sheet of aebl i will harden it and i will grind it like a blade and it'll have the exact same finish and that way when he's you know doing all of his tests and he does all these grids with there like a the frequency and the power and all this other stuff and he'll you know it, i'll give him you know four or five inches by like a foot of, of aebl that's you know hardened to you know 61 rockwell and he'll do all these tests and that way we know exactly what we're going to get because we're going to because my blade is the exact same thickness 
with the exact same finish. And that's gotcha. why we know we get those results. And that's, like I said, it's a lot of uh, stuff to do on the front end of stuff to figure things out. But now that we have our everything dialed in, he can do anything. Like he said, he we've put um, family portraits on the side to chef knives. Um, like I said, any image I can come up with. He, you know, and, th and that's another thing. Like he, he's an engineer. He's ten times smarter than me. But I'm like, hey, um, can we come up with like a cool fish image? And you know, everything's copyrighted. So he's like, well, yeah, I have this AI program that does art, and, it, <laughs> and we just put, you know, medieval fish from pirate map, and you know, boom, there it goes. Like, we'll take that one. There it is. Well, I mean, technically, the AI company will then owe that, but you know, yeah, we haven't crossed that bridge just yet. Okay, all right, but yeah, well, but um. But that laser etching is a really easy way for you to incorporate your Mexican heritage yes. into the the. I mean, think about it. Like it's just a striking design on the side of a knife. I mean, that can that can change it so dramatically between your skulls, between your fish. You know, there's so many cool things. Is there any other way outside of lasering that you like to try to you know show off your Mexican heritage within within your craft? Um. My logo, the, since my last name is Sol, which means sun in Spanish, the O right. is actually little sun. Right, right. And that's actually taken from a couple of artists in Mexico. Like if, it looks kind of generic because it's really small, but if you were to actually see the actual thing, it's it's got a little bit of flair to it. But I just like, um, I do a lot of like beach-themed colors because I, I, we spend a lot of time on the beach growing up. Sure. And just the greens of nature because, again, I... I Growing up, I was always outside playing in the woods, so I do a lot of like I do a lot of nature color, not necessarily quote unquote like Hispanic colors. Although I have been toying with doing something with a Mexican blanket, but um, right, sure. but yeah, it's I would say the colors. If you know, you know, but it's not going to jump out at you as something like oh, that's clearly Hispanic. It's like I said, it's a lot of you know wood themed, you, you know you know, forest and wood themed and ocean themed, which is where I spent most of my childhood. I love that you're able to incorporate that even subtly. I mean, there's obvious really attention to detail and thought that goes into not only your designs, but your materials to make it, you know, really a piece of you that you're giving off to the customer. That is, that is quite tremendously awesome. So, Switching gears a little bit, you were on Forged in Fire. How was that? How was that? How did that go? How does? How was the overall experience of being on the show? Oh, I had a blast, but it was it was really not what I expected. Yeah. Really, and how so? Well, in my mind, I figured you know you're going to show up. It's going to be somebody's shop, and it's going to be me, the judges, and like four dudes with a camera. You know? Sure. And then you get there, and it's this huge warehouse, and there's like 150 people on the crew. There's like 15 cameras everywhere, and everyone's incredibly professional and what and knows exactly what they're doing. And then there's me as like with a deer in his headless. I'm like, what's going on? Like, am I on the right set? Like, this looks way too nice <laughs> to be forged in fire. But yeah, no, it was uh, a really again. It happened like right at the end of COVID. I had literally been released the week before um, by my doctor to be able to use my left arm again. So oh, if wow. you watch the episode, I'm all, I'm a little pudgy because I haven't done anything for you know eight plus months. <laughs> but wow. um, but yeah, but um, it was awesome. Um, there was still a lot of restrictions about from COVID, so we were in like these really small rooms between takes. 
but uh but i had a blast and it was it was really funny too because you don't know what you're doing until you get there and i'm like so they were doing all the interview stuff and that's really you know fine and dandy like oh what's your name i'm like my name's ed so like well is that is it ed is that really your, your full name i'm like no it's Eduardo Jose Sol Tomas, but nobody can pronounce that, so I just go by Ed, and they're like, ha, 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 well, I mean, you are Hispanic, so if you're okay with it, we'd love to call you Eduardo. I'm like, oh, cool, man, If you, as long as you don't butcher it, I'm good with it. Mm. And so it's Eduardo's this, Eduardo that, and then we walk into the set for the first time, and I see sarapes and sombreros and all this stuff hanging, I'm like, they called me in as a token white Hispanic. <laughs> like, are you for real? <laughs> So I was like, I'm like, son of a biscuit eater. Like, what? Like, like they called in a ringer. So I'm like, okay, oh, no. whatever. And I'm smiling and waving. And I'm like, watch them pull out some stupid Spanish sword or something. Like, some, like I had a few ideas of what, like, after looking at the set, I'm like, it's not going to be cowboy because I see sombreros and the cowboy hat's different. And then, so I start going like, there's, you know, there's the gaucho knives and this and that. Like, there's like five knives that are like traditionally Hispanic. And then sure enough, they're like, we want you to make a gaucho knife. I'm like, buddy, like, let's go. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is, I... I mean, I had no idea watching it, but that is hilarious. You see, I was going to bring up, you know, you said you're, my name's Ed Soul, and there's that conspiracy theory theory that, you know, Fortune Fire never wants to promote you. They just want to put your first name in a location. Yeah. Um, well, your, you know, your Forge name is Ed Soulcraft, so that would be so easy to find you if they put you yeah. as Ed Soul. <laughs> However, <laughs> so I was going to go down that theory, but it is hilarious that that turned out the way it turned out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. But, um, but yeah, and that's part of it is I, I use my name as my brand just because I stand behind everything I make. And it's one of those things where, you know, if it's got my name on it, if, you know, if your kids or if somebody later on down the line has your knife, I'm very easy to track down. So. I can fix whatever happens and then just played into my hands after I started watching Forge and Fire. I'm like, if I ever make it on this show, like they can't hide my, my brand name. Like it's right there. Yeah. And Ira Housework also had a huge bump from Forge and Fire. And that's just because Ira is such an easy name to find. How many people have the name Ira? So yeah. I was thinking like Ed Soul, you're going to kill it. But you know, <laughs> although it's, I didn't, I mean, I got a lot of people reach out saying that I was robbed, but it didn't lead to a lot of sales or any sales actually, but I did, I did, I did get all the exposure dollars and people reaching out. Although so the funniest, Fortune Fire, you're saying that Fortune Fire led to no sales for you. Correct. Cause I didn't win. Gary, the guy that beat me, it led to a ton of sales and great guy, by the way. Am I salty? I lost. Yes. But dude, I couldn't Gary that beat me could not be a better person and i'm so happy that it's worked out for him sure sure but um but yeah the funny thing about forge and fire is since i lost well i made it to the final but my hand is i have little girly hands so even though i made the blade the handle slightly bigger than my hand doug markaida that has the the hands of a proctologist like he just grabbed it like a three finger <laughs> Yeah, it was bad. Like, I saw him grab that thing, and I'm like, oh, no. Because my biggest pet peeve is, like, people that failed because they missed a parameter. Yeah. I'm like, 
but there's no parameter on the handles. But I saw him grab the thing. I'm like, I am so screwed. Yeah. And lo and behold, and now it's funny because people who have seen the episode and they meet me, they'll shake my hands like, oh my gosh, Ed, Fortune Fire, I loved your episode. And they shake my hand like, yep, I see it. You got, <laughs> you got little hands, dude. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> now, a lot of people who say, I mean, there are so many different shows and, you know, the, the cooking shows that are timed and, you know, the, the now Fortune Fire, which it just, when you have a clock that is ticking down, you don't think that it's going to make you do stupid things, but you always tend to do something stupid. Was there anything that, you know, whether made it the sh on the show or was cut out for time, was there anything that you thought, like, I totally would not have done that if I wasn't panicked? Oh, yeah. I, I played a fantastic game of fucked it, fixed it. Like, everything. Like, I figured, I, I thought for sure I'm going to be the center of the show because I all I hear was David Baker's like, why is Eduardo doing this? Or, did you see what Eduardo just did? And I'm like second guessing every poor life choice I've made. <laughs> but yeah, I ended up having to, I blew back the spine on my knife. That didn't make it on the air. And then I ended up scrapping how I made the handle for my blade. Because in my, in my mind, I had to use a natural material. And I thought the easiest thing to do was going to be um, just do a stacked leather handle because I had to have, you know, a, a pommel that was uh, peened over and all this other stuff. So I'm like, just do the easiest thing. But here at home, I have these delightful little leather punches that I can just put holes in leather like they're nothing and then just, you know, glue it on and I'm done. They didn't have any of that. And then I broke three, all three bits that they had on sure. the set to drill the holes that had to match my tang. So I immediately had to switch gears and yeah, so long, yeah, everything that could go sideways went sideways. Um, I had, my blade had to be a sand mai and as I was for, as I was grinding it, because again, you forge the blade to shape and then you can start grinding, but it's hard. Well, you can harden it, but um, it's not tempered. So everything is super brittle. Wait, I didn't realize that they didn't temper the knives. That's af That's at the end of the night. Oh, we're right. We're so right. Okay. You're, so I forged it, I I hardened it, and then I started grinding it, and then I immediately went into grinding mode, and I just to keep the blade from getting hot, I would dip it in water, and I literally felt the sand my split apart <sighs> in the bucket. Uh, so I had to go back into the fire, you know. I and I then and then I'd also another time I ground off the tip and it was too short, so I had to draw it out again. I had to reforge weld it. The whole and like I said, the entire time I thought like for sure I was the first guy going home, but you know I, I kept trying to play it safe, play it safe, and then at the very end you had to acid etch the knife to show you know the pattern of the sand mai, and given to it you know it ripping itself apart in the water, I took the time to kind of lightly mist it with water and then just kind of rub it with a cloth mm. to cool it down. But you know I had two minutes and I spent 30 seconds making sure the blade was nice and cool before I put it in the acid. Whereas uh, Matt, one of my competitors, he came down to the wire and it was still hot and I saw him put it in the acid. And then the look of sheer panic oh, that no. came on. Cause I mean, I talked to him after the fact, he's like, yeah, it was in the acid less than a second before I started feeling it vibrate. 
Mm. And then, sure enough, it came out of the acid and it ripped itself apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an intense one. That's that was. I mean, watching it, it felt super intense, and I could only imagine being the person there. That ugh, ugh. <laughs> if you were if you were to get the opportunity and you hadn't been on before, would you go back on? Oh, I would have in a heartbeat because I made some real amazing friendships there. I'm friends with Matt. I'm friends with Gary. I learned a lot from it, and I would still go back. I'd love to get a chance, uh, get a redemption episode because I, I need, I, I physically need Doug Markaita to say it will kill. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, you have also done. I know before we were talking about how you you hone in on designs and you just make them, make them, make them, and you know really refine and make them perfect. But you have done you know one offs or you know things that were you know, out, out of the box. And my favorite one, and the one that, frankly, I might steal the idea at some point, this giant cleaver that you did that has a <laughs> bottle opener as the oh. whole, that is the coolest idea I've ever seen. And I haven't really seen that anywhere else. I... What made you think, you know, that, that eye on a cleaver, that hole, I mean, that needs to be a bottle opener. <laughs> it is. Um, I actually stole that from somebody at a sofa in um shoot it's it's been a few years ago but he made one similar um he had a he had some sort of i remember it was like a, a different type of cleaver but he used the bottle opener as the eye okay and we were talking about it and i thought dude that's the coolest thing ever he's like dude the one thing i'll tell you though is you need to figure out a, be a way to cover the rest of the blade because the amount of people who have who get drunk and then cut themselves while opening beer mm. is ridiculous. And I was like, oh, no, that's terrifying. But then, you know, thanks to the glory of Kydex, I was like, dude, I just put a Kydex sheath on it. And then I just cut out where that, you know, that top corner of the blade. So they can, you know, they can put the knife, they can clasp the knife into the Kydex sheath and they can still open up all the beers they want. And... And that was it. That and then I, I told I, his name is Buddy. I think I can't remember his name, but I told him he's like, oh my gosh. He's like, yeah, that's absolutely. I'm gonna steal your idea from the sheath. He's like, you make all of those <laughs> knives you want. I'm like, sold. There it is. There it is. So I love that. You know, I mean, knife makers are bastards. We're stealing every idea from everywhere. If you want a perfect example, me stealing the the straight up handle design of of uh, Matt Gentry with the <laughs> with the segmented handles. I mean, yeah. all knife all knife makers are stealing each other's things, and you know it's it is what it is. As long as you can make your own you know change on it, how did you change that design so that yours was in your eyes improved? Um, I just changed the the size and shape of the cleaver. And okay. then I put a completely different new handle on it. There it is. So there yes, is. that was that was my big thing. And then, um, and like I said, then I came up with the Kydex sheath with the with the cutout for the for the eye for the beer bottle opener. For sure, for sure. Would you ever go back to? Was that just a pure one-off situation, or would you ever go back to making something like that? Yeah, if somebody wanted one, I absolutely would. Um, There's a lot of fun to make. It's just. Um, I think I only had like two or three people ask for one, so those are the only ones I've ever made. All right, all right. That's so. Going, moving on to the ones that you are currently really, you know, really on, the Pathfinder and your Piranha now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I love the fact, the way that I looked at it, it looks like a little EDC with like a K-tip design yeah. of the blade. I personally really love that because it gives you a really nice, you know, not that you want to be doing a whole lot of stabbing. I mean, you know, there's there's some things that you'll need to stab. Let's say you're you're opening up a bag or, you know, you just need to get into something. But that K-tip design really lends a lot to that motion. Um, so how do you find yourself? Like, was that a really key? Was it because of functionality that you put that K-tip design on the blade? Or was it just because it's aesthetically pleasing? Um, it's so... They're, both knives are very similar. I agree. So the the path uh, the the piranha came out came about just because a customer wanted something very small, and yeah. he wanted to be able to index with his with that one pointer finger, and that that's why the the K tip is that way. Or I'm sorry, the piranha is that way. When you put your finger on it, it takes up the whole blade. So when you're opening boxes and you know doing slicing things. It's very easy to control and index how you're how you're using uh, that blade, and sure. then the Pathfinder that was a collaboration between me and uh, Todd Hunt, and um, he, I basically gave him a bunch of uh, drawings of what I thought were cool knives, and then he kind of put his twist on them, and that's how that, and that's the difference between like the Piranha and the Pathfinder. The Pathfinder is you know, basically the Piranha with Todd, you know, Todd Hunt's, you know, aesthetics on it. And it's, they're, they're very similar, but it's, I don't even know how to say this. They're very similar, but they're very different on how they feel in your hand. Sure. Which is really interesting. And then, um, but yeah, um, like I said, it's just really about, it's more about the function than it is the cool factor. Although I'm it a big advocate. Cool. I'm a very big advocate that it needs to be freaking cool if I'm going to make it. So, sure. So the Pathfinder looks like it's right around what a three-inch blade. Yes, it's, and then the Piranha. Like what what side is the Piranha? Like what's what's the blade length on the Piranha? It's two and a quarter. Okay, so it so is significantly smaller. Yeah. So it kind of gives me the vibes of like the little nano neck knives that I've been making. Yeah. You know, it's it. Do you do Piranhas on a neck sheath? Um, I have not. I make them with a sheath that's meant to go in your clock pocket and your jeans. Nice. Although I am playing with adding some different clips to it. So you could either, you know, clip it to your belt or your jeans. And then there's one that has, I'm, I'm playing with the idea of putting a keychain on it. Like one of those little, uh, like keychain clips. So you could literally throw it on your keys because it's small enough that yeah. if you pull, like I said, and the, the cool thing about like the K-tips is... If you pull something out like the, either of these knives out in the middle of a grocery store or the office, no one's going to freak out that you pulled out a weapon. Like, yes, you could puncture a bag, but like you look at that thing and you're like, okay, that's a box opener. Like it, he's right. not here. He's not here to take the mail room. <laughs> you're not going postal with one of those. Exactly. <laughs> there it is. I mean, that's, that's a huge factor for a lot of people. I mean, not every knife is going to be a bushcrafting knife or, yeah. you know, going to a big rugged EDC person. A lot of people, there's a lot of people who have a white collar job that would love to have a knife in their pocket or in on their belt or in their keychain or whatever that, I mean, it, it makes you super self-conscious when you pull out a five inch Bowie knife or a, you know, a mm -hmm. whatever in the office because people, you know, it's, it, 
there's something to be said about people being a little bit affected by, you know, pulling out a big old blade. So having an offering that is that small and is that, you know, unintrusive, unintrusive. Yeah. It's a really smart way to go. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. So is this going to be the piranha? Is this going to be your next, like, we're going to focus on this little guy? Yes. I am currently um, making a batch of 20 of them. And I'm going to be uh, sending them off to uh, two dealers to hopefully have them buy them and start carrying them. I spoke to them at Blade Show. They gave me some very minor feedback, which was awesome because I was terrified of people holding my, you know, professional, you know, knife buyers holding my knives. I was like, the imposter syndrome was real. But they're like, hey, dude, love the shape, love this, love that. You know, just, you know, they change A, B, C, D. And when you're done, send me some more to take a look at them. I'd love to, I'd love to check them out. And I was like awesome there it is there it is so hey maybe down the line maybe maybe that's something that somebody will pick up that's that's the goal i i'd really love to be able to start having dealers carry my stuff talking about blade show in general let me get like the spark notes the way that you do it if i remember correctly you don't have a table you just go and you know you peruse the crowd and you see people do you like that yeah oh it's it's a completely different show when you're on the, the the customer side would be the way to put it. Sure. Because you get because I know what I like in knives, and I can track down the makers that make stuff I like, and I can see their version of it. And at the same time, I can like, hey, can you give me some feedback on mine and show them mine? And that way, you I get better. And sure. It's just like I said. It's just a lot more laid back. I don't. There's no stress that you have to make x x amount of knives by the time you get to Blade Show, setting up a table, figuring out when you can eat, when you can pee, and then meet, <laughs> and then socialize after the fact. Now I'm there the whole time to socialize, have a good time. If I need a break, I'm gonna walk away. It was awesome. I honestly, I mean, of course, someday when I go to test, many, many, many years down the road, you have to have a table. But I don't think that I will get one before that time. Are you Are you feeling the same way? Yeah, you don't have to have a table to test for your JS. Oh, I thought that MS. I thought it was the no. case where you had to. Oh, they wrong. actually, if I remember correctly, they discourage it because they want you to focus on getting your blades ready for testing and not worry about your table. I, I have was to double check wrong. the fine. I'll have to double check the fine print, but I want to say they want you to. They care. They care more about you and your and your test blades than they do about you actually making money at Blade Show. Obviously, they, <laughs> I mean that makes sense. Pass, you know, right? That does make sense. Yes, for sure, for sure. So, yeah, Ed, I really appreciate you sitting down and spending this time with me on the interview. Is there anything else that you really wanted to let the people know? Um, if if you like my work, hit me up. I love doing custom orders. I do all sorts of crazy one offs. And um, not just hand, not just uh, knives. Like I said, it's Edsel Crafts, not Edsel Knives. I'm currently making a mall, a ten pound wood splitting mall for someone. <laughs> wow! Yeah, it's it's been a pain. <laughs> but yeah, if if you like my work, uh, hit me up. I love feedback. I love criticism. If I can make something for you, great. And I do have a dad joke for you. Oh. I will go ahead and turn down the music. Let me get that trombone ready. <laughs> First time ever doing a dad joke on the interviews. Come on. Let's do it. You ready? Yeah, I'm warmed up. Let's go. <laughs> All righty. Where do bad rainbows go? 
Where do they go? Prism. It's a light sentence, but it gives him some time to reflect. <laughs> Goodness. All right. Dude, with that, we need to, you know, hit the music. Okay, so my buddy, Ed Soul, he is a really, really good knife maker. You should give him a follow. Just go ahead and check out his work. If you see something, his prices are damn decent for what he's making. He is currently at 766 followers at time of recording. Blow that up. What are, what are, what are we doing here? Well, he needs to be at way more than 766. Ed Soul, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Do you have anything else? We've got some time on this. On this, give me an outro. Um, like I said, hit me up. Thank you so much for having me. It is, I love your work, Brian. I love what Brian House does too. Really appreciate you guys, and thank you so much for having me. It was a great no, time. Notice he didn't shout out Ben Butler. Ben, you're you're out, name. man. I hey, you just I'm... said Ed Soul. He's uh, he's not a fan of Ben Butler. That's what I'm hearing here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm joking.